0: turn to Esther chapter 2, Esther chapter 2. They say that one spark can actually create a massive forest fire. All it takes is just one spark, and we've actually seen that a couple times now. So for those of you who are Texans, you we you know we have a state park called Colorado, just up to the north there. And What happens is that for the last two years, they've had significant fires. In fact, this year, that Black Forest fire got started June 11th. That is the largest forest fire and the most devastating they've won, they've ever had in the state of Colorado. It actually surpassed the one they had the year before. I remember the Waldo Canyon fire just outside of Colorado Springs. This year's forest fire, the Black Forest fire, took out 22-plus square miles, 509 homes, killed two people. And yet, just like the Waldo Canyon fire, this wasn't a fire that started with natural causes. It was actually started by someone. And so they are, the authorities are out, search warrants. They're attempting to find, as they're interviewing and investigating, who in the world would start such a deadly and devastating fire. Now, when it comes to the issue of pride, pride in the human heart is like taking a lit match and throwing it into a very drought stricken forest. And what happens is literally that one flame just ignites and causes explosion and widespread devastation. And there is something about pride and arrogance that once we allow it to be unleashed in our heart, it causes widespread destruction. I think we actually know this on a firsthand basis. I can tell you that if I'm not intentionally just seeking to be yielded to the Lord and wanting to be filled with the spirit, arrogance can take me places I'd I'd never want to go. I think I'm not alone. I would imagine if you thought about it, how have you not seen pride and its effects in your own life? You know, if you do not understand the power of pride, let me tell you this. You are likely going to be its next victim. Pride has a way of creating not only turmoil in our own lives, but arrogance leads to a lot of devastation in our relationships. And you may have come here this morning, and you've got relationship fallout. Likely, you're going to find at the root of it is pride. Now, when we come to the book of Esther this particular section we're going to look at is going to put it up front and center that we would see the power of pride. And it begins with a guy that we're familiar with, Mordecai. You remember Mordecai. He is the, the guy who actually raises his cousin Esther. He adopts her, raises her. And uh, you remember if we, as we made our way through chapter two, uh, it's, Beyond all belief, but this little orphan girl ends up being the queen in the Persian Empire. And we found out that that probably wasn't like the little beauty pageant that we may have thought it would be. Uh, She is, in verse 18, you see that there is this huge banquet given by the king. It's called Esther's Banquet. And in verse 19, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Although we can't be certain, it seems probable that that, Queen Esther has now given Mordecai a position, a position of influence and a position that will actually keep him pretty close by. To be at the king's gate, this is where all the commercial business, legal business, um, civil uh, issues, they were dealt with at the king's gate. These men that were at this particular place, and this is a large, massive gate, has huge walls, columns, separate rooms, This is the place where the elders, the esteemed people of the empire, would be. And Mordecai, we find there, and let me tell you, that'd have to be a pretty heady thing to actually be sitting at the king's gate. Well, that's where we find Mordecai. Perhaps this was part of what just continued to fuel this this pride in his life. But there is an event that actually takes place that, that Mordecai likely thought my future is absolutely secure. This particular event, he would believe, would actually catapult him and the good graces of King Ahazareus, King Xerxes. And you find it recorded in verse 21. It's in these days, verse 21. While Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials, uh, the could be Hebrew actually says they are eunuchs. These king's officials, from those who guarded the door, they became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. They guard the door. You might want to think of them as like the secret service agents that literally guard the door of the bedroom and the dwelling place of the president of the United States. They would be highly trusted. They would have incredible access, and the king would have to completely trust him because Literally, his life would be on the line. And somehow, we're not told how uh, Mordecai finds this out, but somehow, whether he's informed or he overhears, he finds out that these two top guys are planning an assassination attempt on the king. So like the text says, notice what takes place, verse 22, but the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. So he tells Esther his cousin, she reports this in Mordecai's name, this guy who's now sitting at the king's gate of this assassination attempt that is being plotted. And so what is going to happen? Well, we've got a paranoid king. He's already lost uh, a major battle war with the Greeks. His kingdom is now being depleted financially, and now there's an assassination attempt, and so he's going to find out what is going on. So, verse 23, when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. If you have a military background that you, you know that to try to demean or to inflict harm or to kill a commanding officer or a king or a president, I mean, this would be, this would be like about as bad as it'd get. And so, of course, it's going to be looked into. They investigate. They find out, indeed, this is true. And so they hang them. Now, when you hear that word hang, you're probably, oh, yeah, I remember seeing a Western movie. Okay? In fact, they all seem to have this in there. where they have this platform. And then they got the guys and their hands are tied behind their back. And they put these nooses around their neck. And they kind of drop that floor right from there. And they're hanging there. And that's what you're thinking. That is not is what is taking place here. It says they're going to be hanged on the gallows. Literally, it could be translated tree. What the Persians did is they actually impaled people. And impaling is they take these long poles and they would sharpen one end and they'd literally thrust the individual they're going to execute onto there, starting in their chest cavity. And then they'd suspend them and they do it in very public places. And the idea was everyone would see this and you didn't want to think like those people thought and you didn't want to do what those people did. And when we look at these reliefs from uh, the, the uh, Persians, when we see how they fought their battles, you see this. This is what they did. They actually literally would capture these people, impale them, and they would try to intimidate the, other, the people they're fighting against to literally completely give up. It was a major strategy of the war. And to see something like that, your mind would just go, you, you, whoa, I can't handle it. I can't imagine what it would be like to actually die that way. Well, these two boys were made an example of anyone that would try to tamper with the king. Now, I'll tell you what, if you are Mordecai and you have just saved the king's neck, wow, you would think, man, I am going to be promoted, right? I mean, something good is going to happen to me. In fact, you would think that he's going to be highly rewarded for this act of allegiance and bravery because likely this could have, this could have gone bad and cost him his life. If you think he's going to be rewarded... You need to think again. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now, after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted. Stop right there. Don't you, we expect that. Someone's going to get promoted. Who's going to get promoted, man? Mordecai, right? I mean, don't you think he deserves like a gift certificate to the mall or, you know, a lifetime lifetime supply of beef jerky or something, right? I mean, the guy saved the king. That's not who gets promoted. Notice who gets promoted. He promoted Haman. Never even heard of this guy. Haman, the son of Hamadathah, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. I mean, man, some of you might have bosses like this. You, you, literally, you save their life and you get demoted and he promotes someone else, right? I mean, that's kind of like you're not expecting this You expect that Mordecai is going to get this amazing position, and in fact, he does not even though it had been recorded in the presence of the king. You see that in verse 23 in his chronicles? And these Persian kings were very good. They made a special point to record any acts of valor, anything that would be of benefit. In fact, Xerxes was especially good at this. He literally, when he was watching battles, if he noted some act of courage or valor, he would find out the name of that individual and his father's name and where the city they came from, and he'd make sure that he was rewarded. Xerxes was really good at this. Ahasuerus was he had made a practice of this. Even the Greeks noted it, he does nothing when it comes to Mordecai. So here we have this guy, Haman. Now, Haman's name, his Persian name, could be translated Magnificent One. And so if you're thinking like, oh, man, if we ever have a boy, we're naming him Haman, you know, Magnificent One, how good is that, right? You might want to pay close attention to the rest of the story. So they promote this guy, Haman. Now, in order to understand what is taking place here, he's, he's referred to as an Agagite, okay? Now, that's, a, that's just even the saying the name just sounds like you've got gravel in your mouth. Let me help you understand a little bit of the background here. Now, you have to all the way go back to the Exodus. Remember when God rescues his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and he takes them through a wandering journey of 40 years. He's them to the Promised Land. But while they're making their way, they are attacked, And one of the groups of people that attacked them are the Amalekites. In fact, their strategy is not to take them head on. Their strategy was to go behind where all the stragglers and women and the weak, and they'd literally slaughter them. And God took it personally. And he told them in Deuteronomy chapter 25, you find this verses 17 through 19, that I want them blotted out. They will be completely obliterated and blotted out from the face of the earth. For the wickedness they showed me, and my people. You didn't take me seriously. You thought you could assault my people. And so we have that. Four centuries later, Israel gets established in the promised land. They have a king. His name is King Saul. He is a Benjamite. He is a son of Kish. Sound familiar? Mordecai is a descendant of Benjamin, and he's also a descendant of Kish. And so we have this, this descendant, King Saul, and he is told by God to go and take on the Amalekites and to completely wipe them out. Well, he does a pretty good job. He doesn't follow through on all the instructions. In fact, he keeps the best of everything he finds, and he also doesn't kill the king. His name, King Agag. Well, Samuel finally shows up, and he says, hey, what in the world are you doing? You did not follow through what God told you. He has this real lame excuse about how he's saving all the best, and, and Samuel ends up killing King Agag. When we meet Haman, Haman is a descendant of King Agag. He's an Agagite. And that smoldering feud between the people of Israel, the Jews, and the Agagites still exists today. And this man has now been promoted. He has an amazing position. Now, we're not sure what position he has. We just know that he is over the princes who are with him. He is either the prime minister... Or he is perhaps the commander of the thousand, the literal chief overseer of of the bodyguard for King Xerxes, meaning you can't go to the king unless you actually go through him. Or he is what is called the king's eye, who literally had the rule over all the governors of Persia, and then he would report to the king. He's got one of these spots, and so it's all set up. You've got the information now who Haman is. And notice this. Verse 2, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Now, you see, what happened here, Haman must not be the kind of guy that you would just naturally want to give respect to. And so the king makes an edict. When you see Haman, you bow down and you pay him all sorts of respect. Well, Mordecai says, I don't think so. Mordecai, he would neither bow down nor would he pay homage. Now, this is really interesting. Scholars, uh, people that want to paint Mordecai in some really good light, they come up with some really good and pretty creative ways of why Mordecai doesn't want to do this. The best one is that, that somehow Haman was wearing an idol on his shirt or clothes that he was wearing, and so he couldn't do that, as if there were some religious reasons. But this isn't having to do with a religious act. This is court protocol. In fact, you have multiple incidences in the Old Testament where the people of Israel would bow down to authorities. And that was just how it functioned. It's court protocol. You were showing respect. Just like you would bow before the queen or curtsy if you're a lady, or if you're in contact with a commanding officer who is of a greater authority over you, what do you do? You salute. You show your respect. And what if you can't respect the guy in the uniform? You salute the uniform, right? You show respect. That is what is being called for. And all of a sudden, Mordecai goes, this is where I draw the line. I mean, this is really interesting. Mordecai has been kind of like a jellyfish ever since we've known him. He has no vertebrae. He has no backbone. He never stands up to do the right thing. In fact, he tells his adopted daughter, he takes that little orphan girl, and he says, I want you to act. And don't ever say that you are a Jew. Let's just keep that quiet. You just amalgamate into the culture. Don't say anything. And when they are hauling off beautiful young women because they're going to turn them into concubines, and they'll probably get one night with the king, and they're going to live a miserable life, does Mordecai stand up and say, no way. I mean, think of it. She's going to be married to a pagan of pagans. He's She's violating all sorts of Old Testament law. He doesn't do anything about it. He eats the king's food. He amalgamates in the culture. But now, all of a sudden, he's going to draw the line there. I mean, this is kind of crazy. I mean, some guys are just like that. I mean, they are never tough until... At, they're tough at the wrong time. And then all of a sudden, whoa, man, let me tell you, I'm going to draw the line here. Now, nope, more from this. I'm going to make sure that you know that I'm a real man and there's no way I'm going to bow down to you. That is what is taking place here. Now, he he should realize what he's doing. In fact, he gets a lot of help. Look at verse 3. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? Are you crazy? You know, Mr. High Self-Esteem, the guy who refers to himself as the king of kings and lord of lords? Yeah, as Ahasuerus? He's the one that made this law. You see Haman, whether you like him or not, you bow down and you kiss the ground in front of him. What are you thinking? Well, Haman will, Mordecai has nothing to do. He doesn't listen. He doesn't care. He's going to make his stand. And he's, he's kind of caught here because he's, he's, he's obviously he's facing a showdown. And, the, and his servants, all the other people that are hanging out at the king's gate, they see it coming. And then look at verse 4. Look how he handles it. You want to see his arrogance and how pride is fueling this sort of arrogant misstep in his life? Now is when they had spoken daily to him. This was like the ongoing conversation. This is really a bad idea, Mordecai. And he would not listen to him, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. What is Mordecai's reason? Look at this. For he had told them that he was a Jew. What? Here's Mr. Incognito. I want you to, I, Mr. Camouflage, he fits completely into the Persian Empire, and now he's going to pull the religious card. I'll tell you why I'm not going to bow down. I'm a Jew. And he thinks that's going to carry the day, kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card. He thinks that that is going to trump any reason why he has to bow down. And, and you see people like this even today. Maybe, maybe you can relate to this. You are totally incognito in your faith. Like, you would want no one to know that you go to to fellowship Bible Church or that you're a Christian or you follow Christ. You amalgamate to the culture in every respect, you watch every movie, you know, how to, however raunchy it is. In fact, you can chime in at the office or at school. If, if they're swearing, if that's kind of what's working uh, at the apartment there with some of the other guys or at the party, you fit right in. You amalgamate to the culture into such a way that no one could actually tell that you would be a Christian. But then suddenly they want to do something that's really bad. And you're like, ugh, I can't do it. And, the, and then you say, well, I'm a Christian. Or if it's convenient, or if you're going to be esteemed because you're a Christian, then you get all bold in your convictions. and like, oh, of course I'm going to really identify with the people of God. Well, that's Mordecai here. All of a sudden, he's found a boldness that he never had. And you see the power of pride developing the mindset of Mordecai. Well, how do you think Haman's going to handle this? Well, if you want to see the power of pride that drives the hatred of Haman, Look at these next verses. Look at verse five. Now, when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, he's going to just pass it off. I mean, think about it from Haman's perspective, man. Life is pretty good. You got the top spot. The king likes you. You got everything you want. You got power, authority. You're going to let one guy rain on your parade like that little rock in your shoe? Obviously, so. He is fixated on Mordecai. Verse 5, Haman was filled with rage. Just literally festering. He just can't stand this whole fact that Mordecai won't bow down. You got one guy who won't bow down to you, so you're going to just literally erupt? Well, watch this. Look at verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. You see, he's kind of passive-aggressive. I'm not going to just confront him on the issue. I mean, think about it. He could just tell... Xerxes, you know, everybody's following the law but this one guy, this guy Mordecai. You want to deal with him? He could have done that. Oh, no, 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 no. He wants to lay hands not just on Mordecai alone. Look at verse 6. For they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. See that? You see the power of Friday. He's turning a personal matter into a race matter. He wants to destroy all the Jews. The people of Mordecai who were throughout the whole kingdom of I will He literally wants to destroy all of them. Now, let me tell you, in the, in the Oriental uh, Asian Near East, they operated on the principle of lex talionis, okay? And that literally means proportional retribution. And that is that if you were injured, like someone takes out your eye, you take out their eye. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In fact, you find the exact same code uh, being given in the Old Testament. That is what's to be followed. You know, like someone takes your eye, you take their head off, okay? Pride wants you to do that, right? You hurt my feelings. I'm going to destroy your life. Does that sound familiar? Everybody's like, don't look at me, okay? But of course, you've all been there, right? That's Haman. And so he's... He's not happy, he's angry, he's infuriated, and he wants to take it not out on Mordecai only. He wants to take it out on everybody related to him, the entire Jewish race. It is like a cancerous tumor. And he just allows it to fester and grow, goes untreated. In fact, he's unable to. It's like metastasized madness. And it literally consumes him, and he wants to destroy and annihilate the people. And so not only that, but watch this. In verse 7, he is seeking demonic guidance as to how to carry out an evil scheme. When to do it. Look at verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Hazarius, per that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. So let me tell you what's going on here. He goes to the magicians and the astrologers of Persia. Haman, he's a very spiritual man. He's not an atheist. He's a very spiritual man. And so he goes to the astrologers, those who seek to understand the ways of the gods and consult with them. And you need to know what's taking place here. He goes, at the, like the text says, at the first of the year. You see, this is a carryover from the Babylonian religion, but they believe that the gods actually decided the fate of humans at the very beginning of the year. So that is why he is going now. He wants the gods to tell him when to annihilate the Jews. And so he's going, and it's, it's purr, or the, it's, you can also see that it's that is the lot. And what they would do, it's, it's like dice, okay? And so they're like squares, and they either have like little cuneiform figures on them, or many of them were just like our modern dice, okay? We might use them for gambling, which I don't want you doing but they would use them for, to, for the gods to indicate how they were to perform and when, when to do certain things. So what they would do is they either had like a large tablet that had all the months and the days... And so these astrologers, these mystics, these magicians, they cast it. Or the other thing they would do is they'd have all these like dates on, a, in a, on these little cuneiform ta- squares, and they'd have in this bag, and they'd shake the bag, and they believed that the gods would then select one, and it would fall out. And when it fell on the floor, then they would record it. Okay? Now, this is different than the casting of the lots that you find actually in Judaism. Because when the Jews cast lots, whether that was to actually define where they were supposed to be in the promised land, they did so with this idea. They were coming to the living God and they believed that he was so sovereignly in control of all events that he would guide them. They wanted truth from God and for him to reveal his will. That's not what's going on here. Here is Haman and they're consulting not the one true God, the God of scripture, the living God. They're going to the gods of this world. And so that's what you find here. And so he is seeking to find out when the gods would want to have the Jews destroyed. And I'll just tell you, this idea of mysticism, astrology, you know, like horoscopes, there's people that are making lost decisions based on what they're reading in the newspaper. All of this this mysticism, this Eastern mysticism, it is becoming so commonplace in our culture, whether it's transcendental meditation, meditation, oriental religions just finding their way into the mainstream, that we're almost thinking that this must be American. In fact, it's, it's kind of in vogue to be spiritual. and In fact, we don't care what kind of spirituality you are. Spirituality is good, is what we say, right? I'm here to tell you that spirituality is dangerous. If it's not focused on the one true living God, the God of the Bible, if it is not in Christ, for Christ, through Christ... You are actually seeking a spirituality that is aligned with Satan, his fallen angels, disobedient spirits, and demons. And of course, whoa, oh, come on now. We need to be really tolerant. It is not such. You are either aligned with Christ and the God of the Bible, or you're not. But don't get the idea that just being spiritual is, is wonderful. You are actually in league with those who are God's enemies. And that's what we find here. And so not only does he now, he has found out this, it's in the 12th month of the month of Adar. Now, I'm sure when Haman heard this, this is 11 months away. That the gods have selected a date 11 months away where they are there to be destroyed. Now, all he needs to do is get the power to pull it off. So we find that he takes advantage of his influence to exact an even greater uh, destruction, and vengeance. Look at verse 8. Then Haman said to the king Ahasuerus, see, he's got always immediate access. Look at this, like, a, like the serpent in Genesis. There is a people, a certain people, scattered and dispersed among the peoples and all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people and King Ahasuerus, hey, look here, they do not observe the king's laws. What? What? And so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. You see, he's playing right into the paranoia of this king Ahasuerus. You see, when Ahasuerus took over, and he, he actually became king that very first year, the, there was a revolt in Egypt in 485 B.C., and he was able to put it down, but he did it mercilessly. I mean, it was brutal. But then the next year, there were revolts in Babylon in 44 and 42. And you remember we talked about impaling? What he did to these people is indescribable. He literally, he did the things that were most atrocious because he was showing that he was no one to be toyed with. So anytime this king would hear of any, any attempt to overthrow him or his empire, he's already been an assassination attempt. It just plays into his paranoia. And so notice Haman is playing this all out here. And he says, you know, there's some people that are doing that. He never tells them it's the Jews. Which, by the way, if the Jews were actually insubordinate or causing issues, he would have certainly heard about it. Actually, the Jews followed what Jeremiah told them. After you get hauled into captivity, remember Jeremiah 29? He actually told them, you better be good citizens. In fact, you even pray and seek the welfare of the cities I'm going to take you. That was their instruction. And really for the most part the Jews did it. So you got one guy that's not bowing down. But here he's he's saying, You know, these people they're on the way to revolt. So look at verse ten or verse nine. He says, If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. What he's saying here. I'm going to bribe you. And this was actually a common practice in, in Persia. In fact, it's kind of the plague of all governments that you have the idea that you can purchase a favor. Sound familiar? I will give you this. You do this for me. And that is exactly what is happening here. It's called bakshish. It was practiced, and that is what he's doing here. He's saying, "I will, I will actually pay you 10,000 talents of silver. Now, this is an enormous amount of money. This is literally 333 tons of silver. So I did the calculations on Friday, if you want this in modern American terms. This would be $245 million. It's 70% of the annual income of King Ahasuerus. And let me tell you how he's going to get this money. He's going to get it from the Jews. It's plunder. He's going to kill them and he's going to take their stuff and their money and he's going to use that and liquidate that to pay this massive bribe to the king. He says, it's all good. I'll get rid of your enemies. And you know how your coffers are a little low from your disastrous war in Greece? Well, this will help the bottom line tremendously. All I need is you to say yes. If you want to see pathetic leadership on display, look at verse 10. Without research, without asking questions, finding out what's really going on blindly. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. He literally gives him this ring, this signet ring. It would be used to authorize all official business. They would take this ring. It had markings on it that would identify it as the royal signature of the king. And they'd either press it into wax or into wet clay. And it had the marking of the king. It meant it was absolutely official. This is the authority from the king of what to do. And he gives all authority to what? He just gives it to Haman. The king, the, the guy who hates the Jews, he's the enemy of the Jews. And and so there's pushback here, and you need to kind of understand what's going on here. Verse 11, the king said to Haman, the silver is yours, and the people also, to do with them as you please. This is an oriental practice of saying, no, you just kind of keep your money. But really, they, they want that pushback. In fact, you see Abraham negotiating the exact same way. It's like, no, you just keep the money, no, because he really wants the money. And so that is what's taking place here. And he's saying, just do as you please. Well, Haman has everything that he wants. He's now got the ring of the king. And what Xerxes doesn't know is that he has completely unwittingly, due to his terrible leadership, just put a death sentence on his queen and her people. Well, quickly, as immediately, as soon as he gets this ring of power, Verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of of the first month. And it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script and each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. It is absolutely official. And every known language in the entire empire is getting this. And what is the statement? Look at this. Verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. By the way, that is the month and the day given by the gods, no less. And to seize their possessions as plunder. He's got to have a way to pay off his bribe, this is how he's going to do it. And so it's all set up. He is, he is using... He's just, it's like being used by Satan. This is evil unleashed. This is depravity on display. And he's literally going to annihilate the Jews. And he's got the authority of the king to do it. And he, let me tell you, the Persian army could do it. They are the largest army in the world. They are estimated anywhere from 250,000 to 2 million. And so it's 11 months of them getting ready, and they're going to slaughter these people. I mean, think of it. Little kids swimming, children learning how to walk, older women who barely can move and can't run, older men who can't even hear when the door gets kicked down, and they're going to be slaughtered, and it's going to be done in one day, and they're literally going to be annihilated. And this was not without precedent because uh, Xerxes' father... Darius actually tried to kill and annihilate all the Magians once when they tried to take over Persia. And if it wasn't for darkness, he would have been successful in killing off all of them. So that is what's taking place. And so the edict is issued. It's going throughout all the provinces there to get ready for this particular day. Now, it's really interesting. I noticed that when we read this, that no one actually kind of acted really surprised at the day in which this edict goes out. But if you were Jewish, you would be like... What? You see, the day the edict of death goes out is the 13th day of the first month. You know what that is? That is the eve of the Passover. This would be like the equivalent of a national law saying that all Christians in America are to be slaughtered on a particular day. And that national law, that decision goes out on the night before Easter. You see, the Passover was the time where they celebrated that they actually became a people, that God established a covenant with them, that he actually led them and provided for them. They were in covenant relationship, and it's on the eve of Passover, normally a time of great celebration. Now sorrow breaks out throughout the entire kingdom among all the Jews because their day of annihilation has now been set. And look at verse 15. The couriers went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And what are our boys doing, Haman and Ahasuerus? While the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. It's like, you know, kind of like having a, a drink after a hard day's work, right? If you're in the ways of the world, this makes a lot of sense. But there's much more going on here. Do you remember in chapter 1? Being intoxicated and inebriated, that is how the Persians thought they were in tune with the gods. And so they're deliberating this matter. They're doing it, getting drunk. And the city of Susa is thrown into confusion. These are our neighbors. See what? They have different practices. That's always been fine. He's let people follow their practices as long as you didn't affect the law of Persia. Now, neighbors, friends, co-workers, they're all going to be slaughtered. The people of Susa are just like, what in the world is going down? How many of you are horrified by this? When you see that there is a Government that can actually kill innocent people, like literally with a wave of a hand, like Hitler would be gone. How many of you are just appalled by that, that a government could actually just kill innocent people like that? A few of you, huh? Oh, that's interesting. Let me tell you, as Americans and American Christians, we cannot take the moral high ground. Let me tell you, we slaughter Innocent people, actually, unborn children, every single day in our country. It is the law of the land. I find it interesting that we, man, we're really upset about Holocaust. This really makes us mad, right? Oh, it's Persians. Man, they're bad. Germany, what they did to the Jewish people. That's terrible. Do you know that in our watch, we vote for the people that either support The idea that, yeah, that makes sense about a woman's choice. If she doesn't want the baby, she should be able to kill it, right? After all, she wants to live her life. Even that means she has to kill somebody else, right? Let's just be consistent. If we are against holocausts and they appall us, let us be appalled by all holocausts. And that is what's taking place here. It is a holocaust where all of the Jews are going to be annihilated. And Mordecai's pride has ignited an international crisis. You see, when that... And that decree went out from Haman and the king. The Jews had to be thinking, if this is happening on the eve of Passover, we're God's covenant people, but we're now in Persia. And only 50,000 went actually back to the promised land. What about all of us that stayed in Persia? What about all of us that are just amalgamated in the culture? I mean, literally, is God going to just totally disregard us? And is this really the end? Are we really going to be annihilated? Because we're obviously unfaithful, but is God faithful? Can he actually actually love a people like us that seem to be so far from him? It says in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard about that. But do you believe it? You know, Mordecai's pride sparked an international wildfire that now threatened the very existence of the Jewish people. But let me ask you about pride in your heart. It's one thing to like, man, Mordecai, Haman, they got issues. But let's take a few minutes just to look at our own heart. Uh, are you nursing a grudge? Do you got somebody's face on a dartboard? Are, is, there a, is there a former spouse or a coach or a teacher or a pastor or something that, or maybe a boss, and they made your life miserable and that you refuse to forgive? You, you won't release. You just, They're not even in your life presently. But man, it just turns and over and over and you will not ever release. It's kind of like, boy, if you had the chance and you have these wretched thoughts of what you would do to them. And really, when we come to a text like this, it shows us how absolutely powerless we are to solve the problem of evil within us. You see, we need God. Do you know why Haman is running off uncontrolled? Because he doesn't have the presence of the one true God. And that is why God sent his son Jesus to address the evil in our hearts, to pay the penalty for our sin. He literally lived a perfect life and dies on a cross to literally pay the penalty for our sins. And sin means to miss the mark. God wants you to experience his presence and his joy and his life and his power. But that only will happen if you're trusting So we've got young and middle-aged adults and they hate their parents. We've got divorced people who love to kill their ex-spouse. We've got acts of terrorism that goes on. Friends, the only answer to this is the gospel. It's Jesus, the perfect Savior for all of our sin and our wickedness and our evil. And friends, we will never know the power of God's presence until we experience brokenness over our pride. I'm sorry until you were broken and saying, God, I, I want you and your way, you're going to know a hard road. What will it take to break you? What will it be? See, the power of pride, it will keep you from knowing the person of Christ. And Christ, Christ is hope and he's life. And I could tell you that after you place your faith in Christ, You probably still will have some thoughts of revenge. But now that Christ is the center, and as you seek him as the center, now you have the power of his presence that you live differently. You now live for the glory of God, and you experience his presence in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for an amazing passage of scripture. We are face to face, perhaps, with the pride issues of our life. We are not so different perhaps from Haman or Mordecai. So God, for those of us who are Christians, help us to keep Christ at the center. Help us to experience the power of your spirit to temper our evil thoughts. And for those who perhaps have come here today have never placed their trust in Jesus, they turn from their sin. They realize that the hope of this world is Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Savior. And so, Lord, we come to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.